Hello, welcome to the Katie Halper Show. Uh, this is a not-so-typical episode of the show. This is a very, I guess, sensitive episode, time-sensitive and also sensitive-sensitive episode because it's with Erica Garner. She's the daughter of Eric Garner, who was murdered by the NYPD. And I interviewed her a couple weeks ago. I was going to release it shortly, but there's some really sad news, which is that she's in the hospital. She suffered a heart attack and is in a medically induced coma. I interviewed Erica twice, once the first week of December and once the week after she had approached me because she wanted to talk about the three-year anniversary of the non-indictment of her father's killer on December 3rd, 2017. And of course, Eric Garner was the unarmed black man who said, I can't breathe 11 times after he was placed in a chokehold by a police officer on Staten Island. The NYPD were not indicted, let alone convicted. So I want to take this opportunity to release the episode because what Erica talks about is so important to Erica, and it's an issue that she spends her life fighting for. And Erica Garner has dedicated her life to honoring her father's memory and also to organizing against police brutality and impunity, and I think it's really important and moving. And she says some really harsh things about de Blasio that are pretty deserved, I'd say. And she also has some really great insights into organizing and how people can honor her father's memory and impact the lives of others. I'm not including an intro and outro with me and Gabe. We're not obviously charging for any bonus content or anything. And if people want to keep up with what's happening with Erica, someone who works with Erica has taken over her Twitter account and has been tweeting about her. You can follow her Twitter. That's ES underscore Snipes. ES underscore Snipes. So this is the first interview that we did over the phone. Also, at certain points in the interview, you will hear a baby in the background because, as Erica explained, she has a three-month-old son named Eric the Third. What are some things that you want people to know about your father, his life, um, anything really, whether it's personal or political? What are some of the things uh, that you wish people knew? He was... He was the type of guy, he was a family man. He did everything that he could um, to take care of his six kids. He never really had any type of altercation. He was like a gentle giant. Like, mm. he loved his neighborhood, he loved his family. Um, if he sees you in need, he'll do his best to help you. Um, I remember a homeless guy, you know, he was, like, really upset that my father was gone because... My father would buy him sandwiches every day or in the wintertime get him a coat or some sneakers if he needed it, some socks. So my father was like, you know, he was like my hero, mm. you know, and nothing can replace him. And you have your own um, daughter? Yes. Um, actually, I just had a son not too long ago. He's about three months. Oh, congrats. Um I have an eight-year-old daughter, and Eric, um, I named my son Eric III after my father. And you have a, a brother named Eric? Yes. What's, her, okay. What's your daughter's name? Um, her name is Alyssa. And so she got to meet her, she knew her grandfather, right? Yeah. Um, her fa My daughter's father is not really in her life, but my father stepped in as that male role model. So she, she was in love. Like, me, I'm the oldest daughter from my father. I was always the apple of his eye, and then my daughter is the first granddaughter. 
So what I love transferred to my daughter. And so does she have memories of, of your father? Yeah, um, she talks about, you know, uh, how he taught her to cross the street mm. and, like, little things. But as she gets older, I think, you know, some of the memories is fading away. She was only um, going on five when he passed. So he taught her how to cross the street, like, looking at traffic, making sure you don't get hit? Looking at traffic and looking at this the red stop sign, I mean, the red hand and the walking guy on the stop sign. Um, you know, little little things. My father was also a math genius. So, you know, he was very good with numbers. So he would help her with her homework. Oh, nice. And stuff like that. Was police brutality and criminal justice reform, were those things that you thought about before? Um, It was talked about, but not really a main a main um, idea for me or the main push for me. Um, I've always been uh, curious about the criminal justice system. I always did, like, little research as hobbies, but Mm. never really engaged in it as I am now. You live in New York, and there are black men in your family. Is that something that you, before this happened, did you live in fear of something like this happening to one of your relatives or or loved ones? Mm. Not not um, necessarily. It wasn't something that was brought to light. You know, we heard stories of other black men being killed, but right. it, it, it never been it never hit home as as close as it did when, when it happened to my dad. Yeah, my father always had encounters encounters with the police. Um, he's he was very uh, adamant on, especially towards the end of his wife, that you know he was being harassed and you know he was in basically back into a corner mm. you know some some um police officers on sat now and lock him up taking his cigarettes taking his money uh money being tied up in bail and doing uh time, time in jail even just for you know something so small as you know selling cigarettes how did you learn about what had happened? Um, <clears throat> at the time, I was working in Long Island City at a Dunkin' Donuts, and my sister had called me um, in a frantic and told me, you know, she don't know what happened, but all she's hearing that my father stopped breathing. It was the middle of the summer, so I figured, you know, maybe it's an asthma attack, maybe he's on his way to the hospital, but my mom wasn't answering the phone, no one was answering the phone, so it, it, it was a while before we actually found out what actually happened. We just had, the family was just notified that, you know, he just stopped breathing. It was nothing, <clears throat> nothing about the police or what had happened, and then, you know, later on that night, a uh, person from Daily News told me there was a video mm-hmm. of someone that witnessed. So actually that night, me and my brothers and sisters, we sat around the computer and we seen the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful video of my father being murdered. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't, don't touch me. Don't touch me. Uh-huh. Put your hand behind your back. 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 Put your
And what was that like? It was heart. It was heartbreaking. Um, it was very shocking. Um, I remember feeling dizzy, nauseous, uh, having sweats. Um, it was it was something that you couldn't couldn't describe. As we re-entered the living room with the rest of the family, um, we couldn't even describe. We just broke down and started crying. And um, that was the footage shot by Ramsey Order. Um, he actually knew my father from being out there. So um, he just pulled out his camera. He didn't know, you know, how it would end, but he knew. I don't know, just to take out the camera. Once again, police being up on people. Back up. Right here. Back up and get on that step. Okay. Back up. Back up this way. Everybody now back up. It's now going to become a crisis. Back up. Back it up. Back it up. I'm going to my house. This way. Let's go. Can't go in my house or that way? All right, I'll go pick that a, way. Pick a choice. I'm getting my Let's bike. Go. You had your chance to get your bike, sir. Staying over there right now. We haven't seen it. And then he was, he's been harassed by the police. Yes. Um, after the incident and everything started to come out, um, he was harassed. Like, cops used to come by his mom's house and flash lights through his door. They actually raided his house and said that he had drugs when he really didn't. He also described um, being arrested by the same group of cops who actually murdered my father, and um, they pulled out cameras and said, well, you recorded us. We're going to record you now. Right. Jesus. Your father, before the, his being murdered, he had helped break up a fight. Yes. Um, in the book of um, with Matt Taibbi, I worked with him. Um, he's actually spoke with people that was there that day. I don't, I never lived on Staten Island. I, I'm from Brooklyn, yeah. but <clears throat> a lot of people that day said that, you know, he was breaking up a fight. Like he didn't even have cigarettes that day. The fight break guy stopped yes. and said you can put it up on me? That's all right. The I'm people that's fighting is going walk away? Are you serious? I didn't do nothing. What did I do? I didn't sell anything. I did nothing. We sit here the whole time out of our business. What are you talking about? Who else you do what? Who else sell cigarettes to? To who? This guy right here is forcibly trying to lock somebody up for breaking up a fight. Everybody standing here, they told you I didn't do nothing. I did not sell nothing. All he did was break up a fight. And this is what happens for breaking up a fight. Crazy. But also, I want I want people to know that there was a message. And if you look at the video, my father was basically pleading before he said, "I can't breathe." He was basically pleading with the officers to leave him alone. Right. That they didn't have, you know, no reason to bother him. Leave your way your way for what? Every time you see me, you want to mess with me. I'm tired of it. This stops today. Every time you see me, you want to harass me. You want to stop me? You want to cigarette? I'm minding my business, officer. I'm minding my business. Please just leave me alone. I told you the last time. Please leave me alone. He was just, you know, out there hanging out with what he usually does with his with his uh, friends. And um, my father is like the peacemaker. So he just wanted, you know, nothing to really, you know, stir up for cops to come. So he was trying to 
you know, make peace between the two people that was fighting. One of the things that is that's that's so was so troubling. I remember when I saw the video and read about it was that um, it wasn't just what they did to him, but it was how they left him. Yes, the EMT also failed to administer um, CPR. Um, also, in another video that I seen, they was talking to him like he was alive, mm. like he was just you know playing while his his dead body was laying there and what they did after what they did after um you know everything that has occurred like you know the false statement um the way they handled his body after like um i was told that the coroner is supposed to move uh dead body mm-hmm. but they just threw his 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 body on a on a gurney like a piece of meat and then they yeah he was lying down the sidewalk for seven minutes while the ambulance came and none of the officers there did anything to try to resuscitate him and then of course their excuse is that he was still breathing uh so you don't give that, cpr to someone who's still breathing yeah and it, it, it's, it's heartbreaking to know that you know he has a lifeless body and no one tried to you know help him the ambulance arrived, and two EMTs inside the ambulance did not administer any emergency medical aid. He that's had a heart attack the, on the way to the Richmond University Medical Center. Yeah, that's what the police says, or the EMT says, but I believe that he died on that sidewalk. Mm. Because oh. in part of the video, you, you can see um, his body shaking. Maybe he had a seizure or a heart attack or something. But it's very, it's very uh, heartbreaking to... Even even talk about it and replay what I've seen. I've seen the video over like a, a thousand times, and yeah. you know, it's it's something that I, I view like as a case study because I wanted to know every aspect of what happened that day. Can you tell us what you are up to right now? Uh, right now, I'm in the process of starting um, a five hundred one c three c four foundation. It's, uh, it's a non-profit and for-profit. Um, basically, I want to focus on uh, organizing, um, endorsing candidates to spread the message about the movement, and also um, having panels to discuss this, this, this topic about uh, police brutality and the policies, and also, you know, hopefully one day starting programs within the school to just keep uh, our youth engaged and maybe starting, you know, independent podcasts and just news outlets to get the word out there. Something that I've noticed a lot about your writing and your tweets is that, and your speaking, is that you really don't see police brutality as kind of an isolated uh, phenomenon. You make the connection between police brutality and, as you just said, education, can you talk about the connections between police brutality and other issues? Um, yes, because uh, I, as you know, that my dad my dad was killed by the NYPD officer, and you know I've been working tirelessly to you know from protesting to talk to people in Congress, state senators, and trying to look up the laws. And the connection between police brutality and its policies and education, like a lot of people don't know, you know, what what is the right steps to go 
about pursuing justice. So, like in school, we're not we're not educated on this, and you know, it's it's, it's very limited um, resources to go about these issues. Can you talk about what you were doing in terms of organizing and? activism, if, if any at all, before the murder of your father? Did you have experience as an activist and organizer before what happened to your father? Or was your father's murder the thing that really turned you into? Um... Yeah, it's something that happened basically overnight. I didn't have no idea of what I was doing, but I connected with the right people. And, you know, I just went from there. I started out by protesting um, small little gatherings outside of a mail office, of a postal office, and then I gradually graduated from that to doing uh, weekly protests where where the spot that my father was actually murdered to the police station. And then I done uh, traveled to different various cities and states to talk about this issue with uh, local communities, and um, elected officials. And can you talk about some of the things that you did, like the, the die-in that you did? Yeah, I mean, um, that was the first uh, time that I actually went viral. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a die-in. Um, I've seen a lot of people around the world doing die-ins, like priests, um, you know, other activists from different countries, you know, showing solidarity and um, I felt like I had to go to the spot and lay in that spot to send a message, basically that you know I, I'm um, I wanted to feel something. Like um, I don't know how to describe it, but it was a very um, emotional thing for me to actually be in that spot and lay in the same spot that he died in. Mm-hmm. And so was that? And how many times did you you did that? Uh, how many times did that turned into a? Um, every yeah, it turned into like a annual thing, like every Tuesday and Thursday for like about a year. Yeah. The first year that um everything happened. And what and how did that how did that feel for you? Um, it brought a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people started reaching out. That's when I started uh, traveling and speaking to other activists and other organizations and speaking on panels and talking to state senators and people just people in general to, you know, support my cause. In in 2014, uh, hundreds of congressional staffers walked off their jobs in Washington, D.C. to show support for your family and also the family of Michael Brown. Had you coordinated um, this with them, or did they do that on their own? They did that on a, their own, but, you know, I, I appreciated that. I felt very good that a lot of people were paying attention. And actually, for people in Congress to leave the floor in solidarity with my family, and meant a lot. Were you surprised that de Blasio didn't do more or hasn't done more? Um, in the beginning, he seemed like he was very supportive. For the first two years, he stood with Reverend Al Sharpton, who has been... I guess an advisor for my family. Um, he stood with the he stood with him um, in support of you know change in policies, retraining and body cameras and whatnot. But last year, well, this year for the anniversary, he refused to 
bring to even speak my father's name. Mm. Um, he also stood with police officers to open up a new police station out in Staten Island on the day that my father was killed. Wow. Wow. So I feel like <clears throat> Bill de Blasio is pandering to to police. Um, he, they, they, um, the police officers of New York um, turned their backs on him um, not only once but twice. Um, yeah. I, I believe that, you know, he's not doing much. His, during his first term, he, he uh, lobbied and uh promised us in New York is that stop and frisk will be, you know, come to an end, but it's just been reformed into the broken windows policy, which basically the same thing and which also led to my father being killed that day. Um, the broken windows is basically um as Bill Bratton described it, if 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 the police don't do nothing about a broken window in an, in a neighborhood it can lead to uh, bigger crimes. So basically, it's it's arresting uh, minorities for minor crimes like an open container or uh, staying in staying in a um, park after dusk. Right. So things that aren't really public threats or don't endanger people, but things that, of course, can fulfill police quotas. Yes. Right. What would you like people to do? What actions would you like people to take? Just um, right now, I feel like a lot of people is focused on Trump, Trump, mm-hmm. and I believe that the message somehow got lost, mm. and I would like people to regroup, reorganize, and re-strategize. Can you also talk about um, which organizations you think are doing good work on this issue? Um, the Black Organizing Project, Black Youth Organizing Project, the Dream yeah. Defenders. But there's a lot of black organizing um, organizations out there that, you know, I would like to connect with. And this is the second interview that I did with Eric over the phone a week later. You um, had emailed me a couple of the things that you wanted to talk about because it was the third anniversary of the non-indictment of the man who killed your father. And the things that you said you wanted to highlight were that uh, Bill de Blasio, Mayor Bill de Blasio, has failed to fire Dan Pantaleo in order to pander to police. And I'm quoting you here that de Blasio obstructs the passing of the Right to Know Act, that de Blasio refuses to make the chokehold illegal, that de Blasio refuses to release the records of Daniel Pantaleo in spite of the recommendation of the CCRB, which is the C- Civilian Complaint Review Board, that Governor Cuomo's special prosecutor mandate was temporary and he has not renewed it, nor has he lobbied Albany to make it permanent and that the Department of Justice promised to bring resolution to the status of the civil rights portion by the end of the year. Can we go through these things and talk about them? Mm-hmm. De Blasio has failed to fire Daniel Pantaleo, and you see that as pandering to the police. Yes. Um, he refuses to punish the officers who killed my father, especially Daniel Pantaleo. He says that he's waiting for the federal government to conclude their investigation before he makes a decision. But I just think that he just he just holds enough to uh, satisfy police officers. The man stood with my family for the past three years, you know, on the anniversary when he was at the uh, church in Staten Island. That's when he famously said, you know, all lives matter. My dad's life mattered. But, you know, here we are three years later. On the third anniversary this year, 
of my father's death, he he stood with officers, refused to mention my dad's name, but he op- he opened up a new police station on Staten Island. This year was the first year that he hasn't mentioned my dad's name at all. Wow. And I was just thinking maybe it's because re-election was right around the corner. Right. And were you surprised that that, that happened? I was upset. I reached out to, I think, Channel 7, and, you know, I expressed how I felt about that. And his response was basically, you know, he can't do or say anything to help my pain. But it's plenty of things he can do, such as, you know, the C- the recommendation from the CCRB or the Right to Know Act or many other things that he hasn't done. Bill de Blasio has obviously served one term and he's going to serve a second term. Do you have any hopes that maybe he will uh, do more about your father's case and about police brutality in general, given that he won't be up for re-election? Like, I'm hoping that he'll hear, hear my cries and the city cries about having better relations with the, with the police officers and not being afraid to die when we encounter these officers. But to me, I believe that it's going to be more of the same. And what about people who say, oh, what can he do just to play devil's advocate? Oh, well, he doesn't have a choice. What's he supposed to do? NYPD turned their backs on him at officers' funerals. What's your response to that? My response is he's supposed to be our mayor. Like, it shouldn't be um, just because uh, police officers are turning their backs on him or he's afraid of losing police officers' support or whatever, you know, if anyone should know what to do or know what the right things to do, it should be him, a man of a black child, you know, who has ties of a black family. Do you think he hides behind that sometimes, like the fact that he's married to a black woman and has two black children? Um, I believe he does because, you know, he ran his first campaign about, you know, basically exploiting his son with the afro and his wife being black and i think he's just he just used that as a pawn to get a get elected i believe that he really doesn't care about black lives even though he has a black family it's sometimes in some ways it's easier for him to get away with things because he can say that oh how can i be how can i not value black lives when i'm married to a black woman and have black children but that's the same thing as saying how can i be uh homophobic because I have gay friends, gay best friends. Right, yeah. Well, yeah, it's like the typical thing that everyone makes fun of, some of my best friends are black, but it's often used because you're about to say something that's racist. Yeah. Have you? And did you speak to his wife at all, or did his wife speak to you or your family at all? No. Just Bill de Blasio. Yeah. He actually sat with my grandfather, my father's stepfather, and, you know, when the indictment came down three years ago. Or lack of indictment, right? Yes. You know, they were, they were in the church. And he actually pulled my grandfather aside when my grandfather was so emotional and crying and couldn't believe it and consoled him, you know, talked with him. So I feel like that's a slap in the face for you to stand three years later with police officers on the anniversary opening up a, a police station. That was like, you know wow, right. what type of, you know, empathy for our family. You know, that was just, like, heartbreaking. So it's like a betrayal. Yeah. And what has happened to Pantaleo since then? He's been getting raises. 
for the past three years, more than $100,000. He's still working. And, like, that's it. He just got more money. More money and no punishment. When they announced the decision to not indict Pantaleo, where were you? How did you find out? All my family members gathered at uh, the National Action Network. Al Sharpton's organization? Yeah, Al Sharpton's organization. We got a House of Justice uh, in Harlem. So all my siblings and family members met there to hear the, the decision. And we was all sitting around, and most of my family members was crying and stuff. I was just angry. And were you surprised by the non-indictment? I was kind of prepared because just a week before, um, Mike Brown from Ferguson, who got gunned down by a police officer, um, that DA in that case, you know, made his decision and announced it to the world. Right. And that tore me up and kind of prepared me. And um, when I left to come back to Waynesburg, where I live, the Waynesburg Bridge was blocked off because of all the protesters that was out in the streets that night. And um, I made the car driver stop. And I got out the car and I told everyone that I appreciate their support. I'm his daughter. And everyone started screaming, you know, this is Eric Gardner's daughter, you know, random hugs, mm. random words of kindness. And um, I asked them, you know, can they clear away because I got to get home. But I appreciate it. I told them, I asked them, can they clear the road because, you know, they was blocking and I, I needed to get home right. across the Williamsburg Bridge. And how did it feel when you saw that? It was very, like, empowering. It was like, you know, at the saddest moment in my life where I was just, you know, in this cab ride just waiting to get home, mine just in shock and just seeing all these people showing their support and out there. In the cold, I was like, you know, it was overwhelming. But it, it was also empowering. Do you remember, like, if you how you realized what was happening? Did you know because you saw a particular sign, or did it take you a while to figure out what it was? No, I knew because of the chants. Um, you know, they were screaming, I can't breathe, you know, Eric Gardner. Um, I seen I can't breathe shirts, I can't breathe, you know, posters. So I knew they, they was out there for my dad. And um, another thing is that de Blasio refuses to make the chokehold illegal. Yes. Um, he has stated that, you know, there's no need to make it a law because it's already in the guidelines of the police policies. But the reason why it became a police policy is because of um, something that happened in the 90s with, uh, with a kid who got choked by an officer. He was playing uh, football in the street and the altercation happened and he ended up killing the little boy, choking, choking, him out to, choking him out. So they made it a policy, but I believe that it should be a law that it should be criminal. People want to criminalize it. Yes. There's an attempt to make chokeholds, which is defined as a move that cuts off air or blood f flow through the neck, make that a misdemeanor, punishable by prison or a fine or both. And de Blasio is saying that he would veto it. Yes. De Blasio's spokesperson said, as is consistent with his previously stated views on the issue, the mayor would veto the chokehold bill as it is currently drafted were it to reach his desk. They're saying it's unnecessary since it's already against police policy to do it but clearly that's not a significant deterrent right because Pantaleo did it 
obviously something that stops people from doing things is when they're going to have to pay for the crime by yeah. paying a fine or going to jail. Yeah. Were you surprised that he didn't get behind criminalizing chokeholds? I believe that he's blocking any type of justice my family is seeking towards having some type of closure in, in my father's case, whether it's the chokehold bill, the Right to Know Act, um, even the recommendation from the Civilian Complaint Review Board. But they recommended that Daniel Pantaleo's records be released, and de Blasio has also refused to do that. Yes, although that... Uh, unknown source from the CCRB leaked the information. And the person who leaked the documents resigned. I got to see them. In my father's case, everything was substantiated, but still, you know, Bill de Blasio chooses not to do anything. Um, I also filed a Freedom of Information Act uh, right around my father's death. The response I got was that I would have to ask Pantaleo personally to review his records. And then um, I think a couple of weeks after the the leaked information, I got a re- another uh, letter in the mail from the city stating that the CCRB, that they found um, the Choco was substantiated when they constructed his uh, reason. And also, Tessalio had previous complaints against him that was substantiated, and still nothing has been done. Right. So reading a a report at Think Progress, it says that the documents which were obtained by Think Progress show that Pantaleo, who is still employed by the NYPD, had a history of breaking the rules, and that he had seven disciplinary complaints and 14 individual allegations lodged against him. Four of those allegations were substantiated by an independent review board. Documents show that Pantaleo refused to seek medical treatment for someone in 2009, hit someone against an inanimate object in 2011, made abusive vehicular stops and searches on two separate occasions in 2012, and used physical force during another incident in 2013. So again, this is kind of a, you know, we people like to pretend that something like the, the killing of your father is an a- isolated incident or it's one bad apple, but the blood isn't just on the hands of Pantaleo. It's on the hands of the entire police force as an institution and the higher ups because how can you have someone who's already had complaints against him have the power of arrest and be armed with a gun or a nightstick uh, with which he then kills a man in a chokehold yes and also um the 120th precinct on staten island a lot of police officers or detectives you know has a lot of lawsuits or complaints found against them so i feel like the whole precinct, not only the whole precinct, but going up from the sergeants to the police, all the way up to the police co- commissioner, I feel like it's a cover-up. Right. I think we should stop, start from the bottom all the way to the top because it's not just blaming one person. There's right. a lot of people involved with covering up my dad's murder, like uh, the police report that was filed right after my father's death was false allegations, you know, it was stated in there that, you know, he could breathe and he didn't complain of not being able to breathe. And clearly on the video, you can hear him say, you know, I can't breathe. Multiple times, yeah. Yeah. And also the the two guys or three guys that were strip searched in the middle of the street, um, they ended up settling out of court, but also they, they, 
they part of uh, Pantaleo's past. You'd think that people who are fiscal conservatives and want to save money, they would want some kind of system put in place so that the city isn't constantly paying out lawsuits. Yes, and a lot of people think that uh, lawsuits equal justice, and they don't. But I believe that's just a way of the city saying, here's some money, now shut up. You got a settlement, and I think that, that some people who are, are apologists for the, for the police try to delegitimize you and your family by saying, you know, you just wanted the money or something, which is absurd because you have been fighting since the settlement. Yes. It's not like you stopped or shut up. No, and I, w- and I will not. You know, money doesn't amount to the life that was lost. You know, um, a lot of people think, oh, we won the lottery or we didn't get a heaven or whatever the case may be. But in my case and how I feel, like no amount of money can, you know, amount to the times lost with my father and his grandchildren. Um, also, this money is to help towards the movement, help towards, you know, finding some type of answers. So it is a help, but it's not a a solution. So how is it a help? Can you you elaborate on what you mean when you say it's to help find answers and help the movement? Help as far as, you know, going out and trying to build an organization and, you know, speak with lawyers or just, just trying to, like, the expenses. Like, if I need to get on a plane and go to another state to lobby against, you know, this person or go to Washington, D.C. or stuff like that. Right. Pantaleo has, gets all the services that you get when you're still a policeman. Yeah. All the coverage, like the health insurance, all that. But if, if you or your family needed, like, trauma counseling because he killed your family member, you would have to pay for that, obviously. Yeah. Um, I seeked help because I was angry and I was dealing with a lot and I didn't know how to deal with my grief. In the black community, a lot of black people don't seek uh, the help that they need as far as uh, mental services, mental health. And um, I tried to sit down with a therapist and the the cost is like $300 an hour just to sit down and talk to someone. So that's another obstacle we have to face when stuff like this happens. This is why I believe there should be more organizations out there offering this help and making this a part of uh, the health insurance. Like, our health insurance should be, you know, covered by that. You mean, like, there should be in this country or state or city health care provided, or do you mean people in your situation should have more uh, support? I'm saying as a whole. Right. Because, you know, our community needs it, but especially for the people who's dealing with this type of trauma. We shouldn't have to pay for counseling sessions. Police officers are covered by that. I mean, yeah, it should come out from the, the police uh, department should be forced to pay for that, if anything. Yeah, if, yeah, if anything, yes. Yeah, I think this people don't realize how bad de Blasio has been on this issue because I think because the police are so bad to him, people kind of assume he must be doing the right thing. But there's a lot of room between doing the right thing and having the police mad at you. Yeah, but, you know, the way that I see it, like, you know, what's more important, uh, a mad police officer or doing the right thing? Oh, of course, right. No, I'm just saying it's ironic that, like, 
in other words the police are so spoiled and so entitled and have so much impunity and there's so little accountability for the police that even someone who doesn't pursue them or doesn't go after them they they still turn their backs on him yes but it's just enough to even speak out and say that police brutality is wrong even if you're not putting in policies in place like even even lip service to to victims of police brutality is too much for the police to be able to handle without turning their backs or threatening a slowdown which i always thought was kind of ironic because probably a lot of the people who are protesting the police would be happy if they were slowing down their work yeah and cuomo he promised the families of police brutality um i started a group called the mothers of the movement and these are like mothers who lost children of some police brutality they met up with him um, to sign an executive order to have a special prosecutor with these cases, taking it out of the local DA hands. And he signed the order with the promise of uh, keep renewing it every year until uh, Congress or what have you um, makes it permanent. But it only lasted a year, and he hasn't renewed it. He kept, he never kept his work. The special prosecutor mandate? Yes. What is left to be done in terms of the civil rights portion by the end of the year? You said the Justice Department promised to bring resolution to the status of the civil rights portion by the end of the year. So what can people do? Um, keep urging them to come down with a decision. Um, they did uh, promise, you know, they would have a decision. By the end of the year, me and my family haven't heard anything. So I'm hoping that we keep it out there to put pressure on them to finally try to seek the answer that we need, we deserve. Can I ask how old you are? 27. Okay, so, and how old were you when your father was killed? Uh, I was 23. And what, when was the last time you saw your father? Do you remember the last interaction you had with him? Um, Father's Day. Um, I usually... Um, have get-togethers in the summertime, you know, a big barbecue, and um, it was Father's Day. I was celebrating Father's Day with him, with family, and I just remember him spending the day with his granddaughters on the swing. Mm-hmm. He even wanted, you know, his food brought to him <laughs> at the um, swing by the by the swing. Just sat there and bonded with his his two granddaughters. So it was a nice memory. Yes. Yeah. Like, he was a family man. Like, um, all the holidays, any type of events, he was always there. He always made sure, you know, he supported any way he could. Yeah. That's nice, yeah. He seemed like, every like you called him a gentle giant, right? Yeah, gentle giant. He was so, like, like, as far as, like, arguments go, you know, you, you want to hear a peep out of him. As long as his kids is happy, he was happy. Yeah. But it's just so ironic that here it's like the police are supposed to be maintaining order and safety, and your father was killed right after he had helped break up a fight. Yes. And then he gets arrested right after that, and, you know, they pretend. it was The irony, again, is that he, he had, had in the past sold loose cigarettes, Lucy's, but he hadn't that day, and so you hear him on the video, and there are two videos. One is by Ramsey Orta, and one is by a woman, Denise Allen. 
that was released after and that shows how they just it didn't give him any medical attention just left him on the ground but in the ramsey order footage we see him say like this stops today like stop harassing me what did i do i didn't do anything and they were just waiting for him you know they didn't even care if they caught him doing something that they could arrest him for they just literally went after him yeah um in matt Tahiti's book uh he interviewed someone from the police side, and basically it was an order, you know, coming up from the higher ups saying that my father was a problem and, you know, they needed to get him by any means necessary. Right. So it wasn't really about him being arrested for cigarettes or they just wanted him gone, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. And, um... You know, it's just, it's just like I said, it, it starts all the way from the bottom to all the way to the top. Right. You I'm, know, you just can't blame one person. It's just in a hole. Right. I mean, it starts at the top, right? It goes all the way to the bottom. But in terms of, like, where it actually originates, it's the people at the top calling the shots. Mm -hmm. um, but they never get in trouble. Yes. Yeah. But that's true, actually. One of the great things about that book, about the book, I Can't Breathe by Matt Taibbi, is he goes through the kind of, it's not just a random altercation on the street where they're angry. It's that, like, their actual, you know, rules and orders and quotas that they have to fulfill. And he talks about how it has to do with gentrification also, and they're, they're building, like, luxury housing now on Staten Island, so they're cleaning up, quote-unquote, cleaning up areas. Yeah, and basically what he put it as, like, why would someone from, from Wall Street come to Staten Island, you know, got this beautiful apartment and looking over the Hudson River just to have someone like an Eric Garner outside their house? So it was more like property. Just like in Ferguson when, you know, a lot of people made it a big deal about businesses being burnt and burnt down and whatnot. You know, it wasn't about uh, the money. It was mostly it was mostly about getting the message that we don't care about you know these businesses or the money you can make off of it. We care about the broken necks and people dying. Right, like in ba in Baltimore with Freddie Gray, right? Yes. And like the biggest, yeah, they didn't. No one really cared about like the media cared more about the the CVS than Freddie Gray dying, yes. being killed. And you know, in 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 Baltimore, you know, it's like it's like a Mason a Mason Dixon line. Like on one side of Baltimore, it's all nice with pretty houses, and then on another side, it's it's it's, it's like the slum. Like a lot of abandoned buildings, a lot of homeless people, a lot of you know, stores being boarded up or gated. Um, I actually went out there and I couldn't even find a McDonald's, you know, to go get lunch. Mm -hmm. Things were just so bad. Wow. And these are conditions that was there before the the burning of houses or whatever. Oh, before the uprising? Yeah, before the uprising. Which, of course, people, I mean, politically will call a riot, but other people call it, you know. It's, no, it's a riot when they're black people, but when it's like white people about pumpkin fest, whatever that, you know, that story... There were some yeah, like, it's like you know, um, when when a football game happened and yeah. a lot of white people, you know, get drunk and, and destroy cars or whatever. It's just, you know, people expressing themselves. Right. Just black people is a riot. Right. And did you meet any of the family members and of uh, like? Did you meet um, um, 
like Sean Bell's family or Anthony Baez's family in New York, or did you meet um, Michael Brown's family or um, Trayvon Martin's family? Any, any yes, work um, with them? <clears throat> like I said, I, I created a, a Mothers of the Movement, um, kind of like a group. You know, it's with my my grandmother, uh, Trayvon Martin's mom, Michael Brown's mom, Sean Bell's mom, um, Freddie Gray's mom, Tamir Rice's mom, oh, wow. and you know, it's like it's like you know, we need all of them to stand together, right? You know, to you know to share each other's pain and and keep keep console each other and help push for the message we're trying to get out there. Um, I met with them. I, I didn't talk with them, you know. Even got some advice from Trayvon Martin's mom. What did what kind um, of advice? Just about how she's been, you know, fighting for her son for, for years, and even though Zimmerman haven't been indicted or whatever, she still pushed for it, and she started her own, you know, foundation, and basically what she do is called a mother's circle of healing. Mm-hmm. And that's every year she gets the mothers together who lost, you know, children. And they just have like a spa day or something and a whole bunch of workshops. Oh, nice. And so is it, does it give you kind of like, does it feel, um, does it give you some solace or consolation to be around other people who've gone through this um yes and i think um by me being this outspoken person i think it encourages them to keep fighting also yeah how much of that do you feel like you got from your father if any um i mean Um, a lot yeah because if he was alive today he would be doing the same thing like if he was able to survive what happened to him, right. he would be out here advocating and you know doing exactly what I'm doing, if not more. And did he do any of that in his life um, around other issues? Or I mean, I know he helped a lot of people. Like you talk about how there was a homeless person on St- in Stat- was it in Staten Island or in Brooklyn where he lived. It was in Staten Island. Who was very upset and who mentioned that he, your dad, would buy him food and sneakers and stuff. Or get him sneakers and stuff, but um, so he was kind of an activist that way. Um, but did he do other kinds of activism? Um, he researched the law a lot. Oh, nice. You know, um, he uh, you know, studied what the cops was doing to him and was was pointed out like you know this is what he's doing. I mean, they're doing wrong, and he actually you know did go about it the right way. He did put in complaints. Um, about the 120th precinct on Staten Island, and he actually was starting to get, like, around his death, he was actually starting to get responses. Mm. And I believe, like, that's why Pantaleo or other officers had any type yeah. of, some type of animosity towards him, right. because he had a couple of officers uh, transferred out of that, wow, out of that uh, precinct. Wow. Do you remember what it was so, for, or? Um, I believe it was for um, being wrongfully arrested and um, he was uh, strip searched one time and I, I, would, I would say molested in the street. Cause right. Got, uh, a police officer, you know, played with his uh, genitals, he put he put it. Right. Um, 
and uh, oh, my father had an open case right before he uh, passed away. Um, he was screaming that he just wanted his money back. He didn't care about you know going to jail, but they refused to release some um, his money that he had on him. One of the days that he got locked up. Oh, so they so he had money on him and they confiscated it. Yeah, they wanted uh, give him back. You know, once he paid his bill or whatever, oh, okay. you know, he wanted they wanted uh, give him back his money. And he was you know saying you know I don't mind going to jail, but just give me my money so I can give it to my wife and kids right. before I go to jail. And so they still hadn't done that at that point. No. Did you ever and get I it? Tried, no. I tried looking into it, but they saying being that I'm not the person who actually uh, did the complaint or whatever, right. and being that it's so old, well, not so old, but, you know, whatever happened to my father, basically, it just doesn't matter now. Right. Wow. Yeah. But I did try to seek to continue on that case or whatever he was fighting. And were you ever afraid that you would face some kind of retaliation? Because as we know, like Ramsey Orta was um, kind of targeted by police um, and he reported that he was beat up and, and, and put in solitary. Um, so were you ever afraid of that? Um, yes and, and no. But, you know, I believe that a couple of my family members, um, anytime, like, my last name or my father's last name, anybody connected with my family, you know, gets harassed by the police or, you know, um, they make it a big deal. Like my cousin, she was just arrested not too long ago and they was more focused on mentioning my name and my father's name than actually what she was there for. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's like a gift and a curse. You say, yeah, like my activism and getting my voice out there, but I also have to keep, you know, I guess an eye open to like officers, right? But um, as I was doing my protests, I also faced, you know, little little things like uh, there was a counter uh, protest on the same route on the same day sometimes. Um, a police officer, you know, protesting, saying blue lives matter. Right. Um, uh, the baseball field on Staten Island, you know, did an event for blue, blue lives matter. And I thought that was like kind of a uh, slap in the face because it just, and like my father was killed just a block away from it, like mm. walking distance. And also like where I would protest, you know, cops would set up barri barricades. You know, to try to make it seem like my protest wasn't going to happen mm. or they was going to interfere or something like that. Right. But I still did it anyway. Thank you so much. This was great. And I really appreciate it, um, especially because I know you have a th three-month-old. Does your daughter like her younger brother or sh has she tried to kill him or anything? <laughs> no. Okay. She's, uh, she loves him and she's a great help. Oh, nice. Great. Yeah. Uh -huh. But thank you. Yeah, and, thanks um, so much. And have a great weekend. You too. Okay, bye. Bye.